Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. And today we're speaking with the wonderful author of the winner of this year's Newberry Award, Donna Barba Higuera, who wrote The Last Quintista. Hello, Donna. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you won for The Last Quintista. You won the Newberry Medal, and it's the 100th year. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, you know, it wasn't even on my radar. And quite frankly, I mean, it's it's been a second, and I'm still processing things. And But I I didn't even know that it was the 100th year. And then, of course, you know, when I found out that, that I won, everybody told me. And and then there's all this gravity to that. But... I I had no idea that it was that year, but even, you know, the awards and everything, none of this was on my radar. So it's all been kind of a whirlwind, both, you know, mentally trying to process it, but yeah, I get it. It's huge. It's just, it's hard to believe. I've, I've heard other people say before, it does feel like you're living in an alternate universe. You feel like, okay, this isn't possible. And so you think you really do you know, question your sanity. You think you're going to wake up and go, okay, that was a really trippy dream. That <laughs> so, yeah, I'm still kind of processing it. I know, I know how huge it is, but it just doesn't seem real. What was it like to actually get the call? So I didn't get a call. That's what's interesting. A lot of the I know in the past they call people in the middle of the night, and so my publisher, the PR and marketing people said, hey, you know. We have this, it's really unusual, but we have these Skype meetings that we need you to do this weekend. And I said, oh, really? And they said, yeah, you know, Barnes and Noble wants to talk to you about a paperback version of Lupe Wong Won't Dance, which is a book that I had that came out in 2020. And then they also want to talk to you about virtual visits. So you have two visits, one on Saturday and one on Sunday. So I just said, okay, well, I thought it was weird, but I'm like, all right. So I log into the first call on Saturday and just completely oblivious. And, you know, the faces pop up on a Zoom call and it was the Pura Belpre committee. And the last Quintista had won the, the Pura Belpre medal. And that was super emotional and we're all crying. And, and they said, okay, I go, okay what now? And they said, well, let's hop on a, a conference call after. So I get on a conference call with my publisher and, you know, the editor and everybody at Levine Guerrero. And so I said, you guys tricked me. You lied to me. And I said, okay, so is tomorrow the real Barnes and Noble meeting? And they're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I completely believe them. And I get on the call the next day and then initially on a Zoom call, it kind of pops up with a name or the meeting you're joining. And I saw that it was the same name from the day before. So I thought that I had accidentally typed in the number. And of course, you know, faces pop up and then I panicked. I thought I was Zoom bombing a meeting. I'm I'm a little bit technically challenged. So I'm frantically grabbing my phone to find the right Zoom meeting number. And then I see my editor and I think it was his name's Tad, who was the head of the committee, said, you're in the right place. And 
And they told me they were calling from the Newberry committee. And I still, it wasn't resonant. I just wasn't clicking in my mind what this was. And then when they told me they, you know, that the last Quintessa had won the Newberry medal there again, you're just, it's, it's, you're just shocked. There's just complete shock. It's in disbelief, but I wasn't expecting it because first of all, I, you know, I was like, it's a call. You're supposed to get a call. This is a zoom call. This is not the same thing. And then also, um, it just wasn't anywhere in my thought process in the universe that this could be a real, you know, this was really the call. Well, I was on that committee and I was on that call and you were adorable. Oh. You were adorable. <laughs> okay. I am so glad I get to talk to this. I did not know this. Oh, mm-hmm. this makes me so yeah. happy. Okay. I don't, and I want the reason I want to say this because I feel so silly now because on the second call, I said, fool me once, shame on me. And I made this like, you're just blabbering. You, you're make. I was making zero sense. And later I said, oh, because they said, Donna, they don't know about one another. They don't know that you won the Pura Bell Prey <laughs> the day before. So half of the things I was saying, I'm like, oh my gosh, I was probably making zero sense to them because I <laughs> was saying these things. Well, and- we were we were a little confused, but we also realized <laughs> that it was a moment of like you realized you weren't in the meeting you thought you were going to be in. You also realized that you had won the Newberry Medal. So none of us were like, I don't know, none of us were feeling judgy about it. We were just like, you know, oh, okay. But then the next morning when we saw the announcements, we actually did a group watch of the award announcements, and we were all like, oh, that's why oh, she said that's why twice. She- So yeah, or fool me once. And so you were fine. You were just adorable. You were like all ready to talk to Barnes and Noble. And, and then I think I don't correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you could see us, but we all had last Quintista wallpaper. I did. I like partway. Okay. I, I was able to see the, someone recorded it. So I was able to go back and watch and I was both horrified. I was so happy they recorded it so I could see it, but I was also horrified <laughs> watching my reactions. But I did say, oh, look at the backgrounds. And so, yeah, I did notice it, but not only like halfway through the call, I think that you got to see in real time, probably the facial expressions of what people on the phone look like. And it's definitely deer in headlights. I was watching <laughs> <laughs> that's the best description, but yeah, I did see. And, um, you know, I will tell you the other part that it's so emotional because you see people's faces and there are people crying and, you know, getting, and of course I was crying, but, you know, see my editor and there were other people and you realize then really the gravity of it and how many books the people on the committee have read and, you, you know, that your book is amongst those and that's when it hits home. And then it's like, gosh, I'm not just one of those books that I saw with a sticker in my school library. My book was one that all of these people have read and it's really, really humbling. And at the same time, you just, it's not something as an author you ever dream of ever even happening. 
Well, I'm I'm really glad that I still have functioning eyeballs. I mean, it was it was so much reading. It was, it was so much reading. Well, and that was the other thing. I don't think I said I so I'm an eye doctor, so I think I said something <laughs> like, "Oh my gosh, your eye strain. I'm so sorry." <laughs> and they were going, "What on earth is she talking about?" <laughs> no, I think we all knew that you meant that we had read a lot. Like we I don't, you know. And from my perspective, like a lot of us were crying then and when the words were announced. And that's just I mean, I think just a testament to how we fe- we all felt about your or feel about your book. I think we were all just really overcome and also to be able to see not just you and it was very I mean, I I don't think I've ever seen someone see like receive such large news and then kind of see them process it in real time. But yeah. also to see your team, the team that's worked on this with you all along and to see their faces and to see that it, you know, how much of a group effort, of course you I wrote the book. I but... with you talking about this. Yeah. They're a family, you know, we, yeah. I mean, we all are. And there's just so much effort that goes into a book anyway. And then when you have people who are invested in it and, you know, you, you live so much in your mind as a writer. And so a lot of times it feels so solitary. And then to see all these people's faces and see that they feel like they're part of your book too. And you're like, Oh, you know, welcome to my weird mind. (laughs) And yeah. And my team was there and my editor, Nick Thomas, who he's, he really, he's just such a brilliant person, but he's always very even tempered and he's kind of like the calm and the storm. And so when I looked at his face and he was really emotional, that was, that was a lot. I remember crying a lot. (laughs) I don't know how anybody could be expected to hold it together in those circumstances. I mean, I, I was starting to say, I only read The Last Quintista a couple of days ago for the first time, and it's funny that you're an eye doctor. This is the first book that I have uh, read all through with my new reading glasses, and and I've never had glasses before, and it kept making me tear, like it legitimately, like I had to cuss, like I would stop and take off the glasses so I could wipe my eyes and then put the glasses back on, and then I would tear up again and then just like repeat (laughs) Yeah, they haven't invented windshield wipers for glasses yet. <laughs> it was crazy. Is that is that coming soon? <laughs> I, you know, everybody asks me these, uh, these, and I'm like, wow, that is a great idea. But yeah, I, there's no no word on the street about windshield wipers. For or at glasses. the very least, you know that stuff they put on your windshield that makes the water just bead. If that could well, be on the inside, we um, tried that during COVID because of all the foggy glasses. Oh, yeah, yeah. so funny. You should say that. And it failed miserably. (laughs) So it's been tried. We tried everything. There just isn't. So if anyone's listening, there really is no help for foggy glasses from your mask. (laughs) Mm, It just no. There isn't. Although um, it's, I think it's called Nerd Wax. They have. They have like a. It's like a little. I'm in a long. I'm a long time glasses wearer. I've been wearing them since I was in sixth, like sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And so they have one of the like lens cloths, like for cleaning, but it has something in it that actually makes it a little bit anti-fog. You have to keep like rubbing it every like week or so, rubbing your glasses with it. But you never yeah. know where you're going to get these little gold nuggets. In the book, Petra has, is there a name for her condition? I'm blanking so, on it. 
Yeah. So the name for her, she has a, it's called a visual dysfunction or vision dysfunction. And, and which is, those are all like the medical terms for it. And it's a retinal dystrophy. It's called retinitis pigmentosa. And, you know, I'm glad you asked this. Not many people ask, you know, why I did that and why I chose that. It runs in my family. My mother had a severe case of retinitis pigmentosa and it's hereditary. And we have rods and cones and it's a dysfunction of the rods. I'm pulling out my eye doctor hat. (laughs) And it kind of, it can start at any age. And my mom, and it normally is something that it progresses with age. So people, by the time they're in their thirties or forties, they have some challenges, but my mom started at a really young age. She remembers being a child and bumping into things and everybody would say, oh, she's klutzy. And, and so I wanted, you know, and we've all been tested. I'm a carrier, but none of my children have it. And, but one thing that I wanted to show was that, you know, my mother had retinitis pigmentosa, but she, and she lived with retinitis pigmentosa but she was a teacher. She was an educator. She had this really full life and did amazing things. And I would say most people had no idea that she had this. And I wanted to show that there was a character who could have this challenge, but that she did great things even with this challenge. And that, so all of the scenes are really scenes out of my mom's life or things that I experienced with her. And there, and there was one scene and, you know, we, my family laughed a lot in, I think a lot of times when there are challenges or pain, everybody handles things differently. And we always handled it with laughter. And there were a lot of times when my mom would bump into things and she would go, Oh, excuse me, because her first default was she didn't want to offend somebody. And it could be like, a door jam and <laughs> she's apologizing to the door jam. So I just wanted to show those things in a character and a character like Petra. So in some ways she represents that challenge that my mother faced as a child. And I just, there, she, my mom was just such a strong person. And I wanted to show the same with Petra. I think that certainly comes across and I'm also curious because you have uh, Petra's grandma, you have her as the storyteller and passing that on to Petra. And is that something that you had in your, in your family as well? Wait, we're going to have to call this cry therapy. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, Yeah. You know, my grandmother was, she, she stopped going to school when she was, I think 10 or 11, her father had died and and he was from Mexico and he was a laborer and, it, you know, died under mysterious circumstances, story for another day, but she had to go to work. And so she didn't really have, she could, she could read and she could write, but she didn't have a huge grasp of the written language. <clears throat> so she wasn't really one to read me books when I was little, but she was a storyteller and she had the best stories that you never knew what was real and what wasn't, how much of it was made up. And my father was the same way. He was always telling my sister and I stories when we were younger. So the opening scene of the book when Petra's in the desert with her grandmother and they're in 
you know, they're kind of looking off into the desert and you hear the desert noises and there's, you know, they're, they're sitting by a fire pit and she's telling her this story. That was kind of me getting to relive a moment with my grandmother. And it was a scene that I'd written pretty much after the book was almost completed. I'm like, you know, it just starts in the wrong place. I need to show what she's leaving and how beautiful storytelling is in her everyday life before she goes on this journey. And I'm like, how to do that? And I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I not think of this? This has to be a moment with her grandmother. And so it was such an easy scene to write because I'm like, oh, I'm just going to write a scene that could have been me and my grandmother. And the noises, I think I had the chickens and the goats, which was, you know, like my grandma's farm. And, you know, she lived in the desert. And so, yeah, it was... I did have that <laughs> in my family, very much so. And I always liked stories. I liked to write. I never felt like I would ever have as much charisma and character as my grandmother. And so, I, you know, we don't even realize sometimes when we're writing books, authors don't, by the end, we're like, wow, I was trying to deal with something or digest something, or this is in some ways autobiographical. And some novels I've written, I don't feel that way. I don't so much with Lupe, but I, for sure here, I felt like I got to have this moment again with my grandmother. And, you know, when Petra has these flashbacks with her family, I, that's kind of, those are things that could be me or could be me, you know, with my grandparents or parents or me with my own children. So but yes, storytelling, the oral tradition of storytelling is huge and was huge in my family. And I think in a lot of cultures, those stories as people move and migrate and, you know, face new challenges, those stories change and they get altered depending on what the environment is of the storyteller. And I wanted to show that with Petra, like she was taking these very traditional stories of Mexican folklore and in some ways changing them to either influence others or even help herself deal with what was going on around her and the trauma around her. And I think of my grandmother when she was, she grew up in San Luis Obispo and Paso Robles area in central California. That was where her family had migrated from Mexico from. And she was sent to the Bay Area, which is several hours away. And that was where she worked as a maid in a hotel and then later a cook, really young, you know, re like 11 years old. And she just said that, you know, the pe the workers would exchange stories. And because she was so young, she knew that if she could be the funniest or that if she could tell the best story, that she would have company and people would like her. And that just, I think of it you know, an 11 year old child having to do that. And I go, wow, that's, oh my gosh, see, I'm crying. <laughs> you know, that was, you know, yes, it's my grandmother, but she was a child and having to, you know, tell stories, hoping that someone will listen and someone will like you. And so she just became this amazing storyteller, I think out of necessity, you know, to connect to other humans. And I think some of us do that. That's our way of connecting with other people people and writers and family is we tell stories. Well, and that's exactly what Petra did in the book. And it was so touching, like the, 
I, I just thought it was so clever to have that be the way that they connected to their current situation and understood what was happening. And also she was remembering the past and letting it inform the present, but also the future. You know, the way that you opened with your grandmother's scene that was so vivid, but then it was bookended at the end of the book. You know, you got that hint of the fact that she might be reaching that again as well in her new situation. It just, it, oh, it was just woven together so well. And I don't blame you for tearing up. It got me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, I, I get a lot of questions with people go, well, what next? And I always wrote this book knowing what I thought would happen next. And I didn't think anybody else would want to know. And so I'd written other scenes even later, just because a lot of times I want to go revisit my characters. It's just my way of like giving them a call or <laughs> seeing what they're, what they're up to. I'll write a scene. But for Petra, I knew this was kind of just the beginning for her. She's, you know, she's just reaching this spot where she gets to take off from here. And I hope that, you know, readers get to imagine that as well. Like, wow, what kind of stories is she going to tell people? And, you know, they're going to get better and better as, as she gets older and tells more stories. So, yeah, I think that I, I do writing the, the end of that book. It was a little bit of a goodbye to Petra, but also like, let's, you know, see you soon. See what, see what you're going to do. It felt like the giver in that respect. It was interesting because I I didn't intend it that way, but I, I, a lot of people have said that to me that you don't know, but as a writer, really, when you're writing an ending, you want the ending to be the completion of the character arc. And for me, that was the perfect moment for Petra. If, if I had let, allowed us to see what happened next, then you're writing another book. You know, you're you're opening up a complete new beginning of Petra and her character arc on the planet. And so I I couldn't do that at that moment, but I can see where people would think that because they're like, wait a minute, it, you know, but I don't think that I left it. I think the giver, a lot of times you're left wondering if what's going to happen is good or bad. And you know, did they survive or not? Or are they already gone? And this is a dream. Like, there's so many questions at the end of The Giver. I wanted to leave this feeling like, because, and that's why purposely the last word of the book is home. That's perfect. And it does and, give that impression. <laughs> so, and that was from the, and a lot of times when I write, I'll write the first, the beginning of the book and I might know where it ends. And when I get goosebumps, I'm like, this is the end. And so I started it out. The, the book begins with home and it ends with home. Oh, that's wonderful. I love it. You have storytelling, the storytelling element, you have family and home and this push and pull between kind of the past and the present slash future. Where or how, I guess the best way to ask this is, what inspired you to put that all together in a like a dystopic science fiction setting? Well, I am a huge sci-fi nerd. Yay. <laughs> and so... I, you know, the time period when I grew up really, I mean, yes, we had novels. We, ha you know, we had like my 
all-time fave as a kid was A Wrinkle in Time in this series. But then also, you know, I liked fantasy as well, The Chronicles of Narnia and all of Tolkien. But I, a lot of TV, I grew up with Star Trek and The Twilight Zone and, and you know, <laughs> and a big imagination. I always was, you know, taking things and making them my own in a way and imagining other scenarios of things. But so... I, but I, when I write a lot of times I go to dark places, if that's my way of dealing with something that in the world is bothering me and I can't do it, you know, in the world, it's hard to deal with. I do it with my writing, but I don't even know that we realize we're doing it until the book is written or go, wow, that's pretty telling of what I was afraid of at that time. And with this book, as I started writing it, I didn't think of it really as sci-fi. I knew it was, but for me, it was just my normal. And so as I put this character in this setting, it was maybe a little bit of me dealing with some of my fears of going, wow, the world feels really weird right now. Okay. It feels really weird. What, what, you know, what could potentially go wrong? You know, oh, so I put the character in all these worst case scenarios, but I also gave her those questions of, you know, what she loved most in things that are very everyday for most people. So for, you know, for me, it's family and storytelling. And so I wanted to show that I was putting this character who just loves what I love, which is my family and storytelling and books and, but the worst case scenario just happened in the real world. And what are you going to do about that? And how are you going to protect those things that you love? And so I think that's kind of how it came to be, but it wasn't really by design. I think a lot of it was subconscious and, and both a way to maybe heal from the things that, that I see in the world, but also my way of, it was kind of like my own counseling session for myself where I get to, you know, let the character go through my worst fears and then figure out if it's going to be okay. Well, and there's a lot that needed to be dealt with in the past few years. So I'm sure you had plenty of material. For sure. Yeah. And well, and I don't know, I mean, it's such a, there are a lot of things that came up in the book that ended up being timely topics. And I mean, as you know, when in writing, it takes a while to publish a book. So the beginning, I wrote this book, you know, very beginning of the, in finishing during the pandemic. And so the things that are happening right now with, you know, publishing and books being pulled off shelves, that really wasn't I mean, it's been, it's been going on throughout time, but it didn't really come to such a head until recently. And, and that's one of Petra's biggest fears. And it wasn't obviously done by design. It just happened, you know, cause I think history repeats itself. It does. On a slightly different note, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the recurring theme of dreamers. Oh, <laughs> we love that book. And actually, Juju Morales is one of the earliest people that we ever interviewed. We love her. Um, How is that a book that you particularly loved and that's why it's in there? Or would it just suit so perfectly that that seemed right for the book? So I love this question. I So I originally had... <laughs> 
book X kind of as a placeholder (laughs) while I was writing the book. And I had tried a few different books. I, one book that I was going to end with, I thought was Frederick the mouse and about how he collected colors and dreams and, and sun, you know, sunbeams and like part, you know, he would just, instead of working like the other mice, he would gather stories. And so and, you know, people say, oh, Frederick was a lazy little mouse. Well, no, he was he was working just in a way that people don't understand. And so that was a book that I was using initially. And it was it was OK. It, it worked. And then I read Dreamers <laughs> and I said, oh, my gosh. So I just I took that. I took Frederick out. Sorry, Frederick. And um, <laughs> and put in Juji's book and. And it was so much more poignant in the respect that what that book represented, not just stories and books, but migrants and people traveling from one place to another and the wonder of it all. And, and just gives me goosebumps just talking to you about it. But as you know, you can't just put a, a book in another book. And so we had to get permission. And so that took some time. And, and my, <laughs> my editor said, you know, this isn't as easy as you think it will be. And I'm like, we, you have to make it happen. <laughs> and so they did, they had to work with Juji's publisher to allow, and it, and you can, and again, it, you have to be really cautious about how much of a book you put in. And, and so I chose the lines obviously that were most impactful, or I thought would be most impactful to both of the characters in that moment for Petra and Javier and like things that words that were just life-changing for them. And I thought might be for a reader as well. And, you know, just that scene, it shows you the power of books and, you know, picture books as well. It's, you know, I just love picture books. But as far as, you know, the book itself, I have the one thing I've loved the most that I'm hearing about is that people are buying both books and reading them together at the same time because they want to know. So it's so clever of Juji's publisher because they said, well, you know, because we know the law, you can only use so many words. But now readers are going to want to see what that book is about, too. And I love that because they're almost like companion (laughs) books. So I have on my website, I always have educational guides for my books on my website. And, you know, teachers, when they'll, they'll download the educational guide, they'll, you know, get classroom copies. But also they'll, you know, get Juji's book at the same time. And then kids get to talk about why her book was so powerful to Javier. And I love that. That's, it's just like this 3D puzzle. Now it's, you know, got all these little facets that people can see a book within a book as well. I'm so glad they're doing that because you're right. Like people can read your book and get the gist, but Mm -hmm. Judy's book, that's why I wasn't sure if you had written it with that in mind all along, because it's so perfect. I mean, beyond perfect, yeah, even, even just know. the visuals, like you described like the, the, the ship as being so stark and bare and like lacking in everything, personality and, and just yeah. feeling. And her book is so just like vibrant and colorful to see it. 
I think would I know, make a I huge know. impact. I, and that was why, you know, cause I, I had written most of this book before her book came out. And so when I read her book, I was like, what? And that <laughs> happens sometimes where, you know, authors cross paths in what they're maybe thinking about, but yeah, I had already plotted and written out a lot of this book. And then I read her book and I said, Oh, this is meant for this moment. So yeah, that makes me so happy, but I I love that, you know, just, and it's interesting because obviously her book is meant for a younger audience, but someone who is reading my book in a fourth, fifth, sixth, and I mean, I'm hearing high school classes too. If they are reading my book and then, you know, a teacher or someone reads Juji's book to them as well, or even a child picks up Juji's dreamers and reads it. And they're going to go, Oh my gosh, this is perfect. And they just feel almost like they're a companion, you know? So I love that. Well, and they're both, they're both essentially love stories to story, like love letters to story, you know? So they work so well together in that respect. I mean, in all its forms, you've got the oral storytelling, you've got the, the books, like you mentioned books throughout that every time I, (laughs) I would turn to a new paragraph and be like, yes, Neil Gaiman, Le Guin, you know, of course she wants those stories, but you know, and then, and then in dreamers, like basically the library as like a foundation for home in a new land, like it just works, just works. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, we all walk into a library and like just the smell, like I, I still remember the smell of my childhood library town, the town library. And yeah, there's just such just the sensory details, even of a library and, you know, the librarian at the desk and oh, I just love it. You know, I, I can still close my eyes and imagine it today. Me too. Jenny, do you have that perspective too? Jenny is actually currently a librarian. Um, yeah. No, I mean, always and forever. (laughs) Just always. Uh, I mean, I remember the little weird carols that they had in my my library growing up. They always smelled like crayons somehow. I don't know why. Yeah. And I mean, I could tell you the whole layout of most of the libraries that I've grown up with. My librarian, Mrs. Hughes, she had this he's called Larry library and he was a puppet and he was made out of, I thought it was an orange juice, like an old minute made can. But then someone told my sister said, no, no, it was a soup can. And, but every kid in town knew Larry library. And she almost had like this vaudeville act where you would go in and she would, she and like a ventriloquist, she would go back and forth between her and Larry and she would make up his <laughs> voice and tell stories. And, and so I think that in some ways she had that thing too, where she was, you know, tricking kids into paying attention, you know, the, the, who needed to get their wiggles out. But the second that Larry came out, everybody was like, just enraptured with Larry, the library. Mm-hmm. And she also, you know, <laughs> She had dial a story where every Tuesday, <gasps> I can't believe I remember this, every Tuesday it would change. And it was probably just recorded on an old answering machine. So I, on Tuesdays, my friends probably were like, what is wrong with her? I would get out of class. And I was the kid who would run up the hill home. I was, I wanted to be the first one home and the first one dialing. This was back in rotary dial days. And I was like rushing and I, I look back and I'm like, 
I was probably the only kid in town sprinting home because I wanted to be the first one. Because once you got through, if it was busy, you couldn't get through. So I would dial. And then I don't know why I did this. What a punk. I just, I would dial again. Like it's the second I got off because I'm like, I want to hear it a few times before any of the other kids. Like <laughs> what? Like what a story monger. Like that is so, <laughs> but I, I look back and I'm like, I wonder how many other kids actually were hurrying to home Tuesdays to call dial a story. I, um, as soon as you said dial a story, I too <laughs> knew the joy of dial a story. It was one oh, of my favorite things. <laughs> I was one of my favorite things. I don't remember, like, I remember if it was busy that, you know, I would try again, mm-hmm. but I don't remember there being like, like any, knowing that anyone else knew about it. Like to me, it was like the secret amazing thing that I knew. And maybe I was even worse. Cause I didn't even tell other people. <laughs> Well, I don't, I think I was, you know, I don't know that I told anybody else about it. Cause I think I, I don't think that the other kid, they were probably outside playing <laughs> and I was rushing to the phone. Well, you know what? I, it's not stories, but recently somebody told me about this and I tried it and it's amazing. There's a number you can call. I think it's a fifth grade class did this as a project and it's like an encouragement line and they can be like, oh. if you need encouragement about feeling nervous or your insecurity, like hit, hit one. If you have, if you're mad, like press two. And then it's like this little oh. fifth, fifth grader voice being like, next time try counting to 10 and take a deep breath or go outside oh. and play. And it's the most precious thing. I love that. That's oh amazing. Oh, uh, you know, what a brilliant thing. I think that, you know, it's such, you know, when you look at growing up and there are so many awkward years in there and emotions where you're trying to learn how to, you know, how to handle those and for kids to help other kids, that is wonderful. Cause sometimes it just, you know, adults telling kids what to do. Kids are just over it. They're like, okay, I, I have to listen to you all day long. And so that's wonderful that kids are doing that for one another. And adults, can adults call the line? Yes, I did. I totally did. Oh. <laughs> I need to call sometimes. I'm sorry. Now that's making me tear up. <laughs> it was a little so... voice is going to tell you everything's okay. It's so that's sweet. amazing. Yeah. And you know what? That little voice telling you everything is going to be okay is going to have so much power, more power than, you know, probably is someone you know or a parent or grandparent or something. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. awesome. We would love to know if you have any Newbery books that are your particular favorites today. Oh, um, this is such a loaded question because I have so many. Well, I think most, let me see, what have I read recently that I just loved? Did Hello, yes, did Hello Universe did win the Newbery, but I can't remember what year. Yes, that was. I love this book. It's Erin Entrada Kelly's Hello Universe. We love her too. We love everything she writes, but I was so thrilled when that one. This book was, you know, it's one of those, talk about like last sentences and final words. This one just was a, at the very end, like the best possible way of a gut punch where you're just like, oh, what a great ending. 
Yeah, this is probably my most recent read that and favorite Newberry. Everyone's my favorite. So once I read a book, I'm like, oh, this is my new favorite. My family laughs about that because I have a million favorites. It's not just books, it's everything. It's meals and everything else. I think my favorite of all time, it just has to be because it's who I am is A Wrinkle in Time. Yes. It's, yeah, it's so much a part of my sci-fi nerd dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, those are, so I get what, what interesting, because they, those two books, A Wrinkle in Time and Hello Universe are just on such, on the writers and just polar opposites, but just both so beautiful and in different ways. We're curious about what you have coming out soon or soonish. So actually it's interesting this year, I don't have anything in 2022, which things got pushed back a little bit, but that's not a bad thing. I have a a lot of, I'm really busy, but I have two picture books coming out with Abrams. One is The Yellow Handkerchief or El Panuelo Amarillo, which is a book about a girl who, like myself, is mixed race and is kind of, you know, the growing pains of opening up your culture to your friends and maybe sometimes not always ready, being ready to share certain things. And it's, again, it it was a story I never thought would see the light of day, but it's about my grandmother and uh, the yellow handkerchief represents her culture and the things that she did with the yellow handkerchief that a lot of grandmas didn't do because my, you know, my grandmother would do things that were distinct to her culture and, and then how the character at the beginning has to grow to love the yellow handkerchief where she doesn't so much in the beginning. And I have another picture book called Feliz Navidad El Cucuy, which El Cucuy is kind of like the Mexican boogeyman. So I, um, <laughs> last year El Cucuy is scared to came out with Abrams and it's, he's, he's not like the kind of the American boogeyman where it's a little bit obscure. You don't really know what he looks like, but you just know he kind of lives under the bed. El Cucuy has fangs and is hairy and you know, Mexican grandmothers and, and aunties and every, they just use El Cucuy to scare you into doing things. Um, <laughs> So I wanted to make him not so scary. And so that he, you know, is starting school with his boy Ramon. And and so they're both a little nervous. And it's kind of a book about, you know, fear and conquering fear. And so we're doing a Feliz Navidad El Cucuy book, which is, again, it's really funny when, you, you know, the lights and all the the love and things that come with with the holidays and El Cucuy's having none of it. But um <laughs> And then um, I was, you know, I'm working on another book. It hasn't been announced yet with Levine Guerrero, but I can tell you that it is in the same universe as Petra. (gasps) Yay. Yeah. And it's, it's a very different book. It's kind of what happened on earth 400 years after the comet strike and the few humans that may or may not be still be living. And, and so, and you know, I'm finishing the book and it is very different than Petra and I love it in other kinds of ways. It's not, it's not as much of a literary book, I would say, as Petra is. It's a little bit more true sci-fi. And so it's, I, you know, it's, but all of my books are so different. I mean, Lupe Wong Won't Dance is a contemporary, you know, novel. And, and so, 
it's and it's humor and I don't know if you caught it. There's an Easter egg of Lupe in the last Quintista. So all my books in some way are a little bit connected. And I don't know how I pulled that off and how they let me do that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, this, this book is, I'm finishing it up and then it'll go into edits, but it has been just as much fun to write as Petra was, but in a very different way. Oh, well, I can't wait to read it. Then of course, you know, I, I think that I'll revisit Petra, I, but I don't know. That'll be in the future. A lot of people want to know, and I know it will happen. I just don't know when. I don't know how old Petra will be, but we'll, I will get back to Petra. I have to. I'm extremely excited to hear that, but I do think that your point that by the end of the last Quintista, the story has reaches a natural end. Right. Like I, I don't feel like I've been left hanging, but I am super excited to know what happens next. So yeah. And I do think making me so happy. (laughs) Yeah. If we see Petra again, it, it probably won't be her story. It will be someone else's, but we'll get closure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. I picture her as like a storytelling grandmother and it's like somebody else, the younger person's story. Oh, I love it. Love it. Yeah. I, yeah, me too. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Have a have a great afternoon. Yeah. Thank you both. Have you too. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Newberry Chart Podcast. Again, we were speaking with Donna Barba Higuera, author of 2022 Newberry Medal winning The Last Quintista. Please rate and review us on whatever platform you're using to listen. It helps keep the podcast going. Thanks so much. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.